Tuesday, and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. On Tuesdays, uh, since I take Mondays off, a little bit of catch-up to do, and I was going over my notes about all the things I needed to catch up with, and I just kind of threw up my hands because the last time we did a podcast on Friday morning, we hadn't yet seen the search warrant from Mar-a-Lago. Okay, doesn't that seem like a million years ago? It was Friday afternoon that we found out that the former president of the United States, um, that his home was raided as part of an investigation into violations of <laughs> the Espionage Act. And I mean, yes, that, that is that is an extraordinary story, but it's really one of the many extraordinary stories that we're having to confront today. I mean, Rudy Giuliani found out yesterday he's the target of that Georgia grand jury probe of attempts to overturn the election. Lindsey Graham went to federal court in order to block a subpoena to have to testify under oath about his role in that same criminal investigation. Meanwhile, we're learning that Trump's team copied sensitive voting data from election systems in Georgia as part of this secretive effort to access voting equipment. <laughs> Another White House lawyer subpoenaed by the federal grand jury investigating January 6th, which is a completely different criminal investigation and in a completely different criminal investigation. It looks like the former Trump organization's CFO, Alan Weisselberg, is about to plead guilty to criminal charges. Last week, Donald Trump pled the Fifth Amendment more than 440 times. And yet, a lot of folks in Trump world count all of this as a win for the president. So let's talk about this amazing moment we are in now. We are joined by Charlie Warzel, contributing writer at The Atlantic, also author of Galaxy Brain, a newsletter about the internet and big ideas. Charlie, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. That is quite a laundry list that you just read there. <laughs> and I left off all sorts of stuff. I mean, I could have read through the various statutes that he violated. I don't know about you, but on Friday afternoon, I was mowing the lawn, listening, listening on my headphones to discussions on the cable shows of, of what was in this search warrant. And it was like, even after six years, this stuff is jaw dropping. The fact that the president basically took this super secret stuff, stuff that's supposed to be not removed from skiffs, maybe about nuclear weapons, and that he squirreled it away in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, that was jaw-dropping. I mean, right? Or am I overreacting to that? No, I don't think I don't think any of it's an overreaction. And I, I think, I mean, to me, I, I'm sort of a, a nerd about just news in general and the way that it changes over the over the years. And, and to me, the idea that as much news that happened on on a Friday in mid-August was just, it was truly mind-blowing to me. It's sort of, I, I think it's a great barometer for just like how, what a precarious situation America is in right now. That there is like, in the in the time generally reserved for everyone just checking out and going on vacation and doing nothing, we're in the midst of like a blockbuster political scandal. <laughs> Well, and, and also just watching Trump's reaction to all this and watching the Republican Party's reaction to all of this, again, has been extraordinary. You know, the party that claimed that it backs the blue is now actually marketing hats, defunded the FBI. The attempts to delegitimize the judge, the grand juries, the Department of Justice, the FBI, you know that it's already picking up momentum. And this leads us into this moment where you go, you remember how really, really bad things were before? They're about to get worse. I mean, doesn't it feel that way? It really does. I want to say, 
it was on Sunday and there was news of a, of a man who drove his car. I, I, I might be butchering this, but into the, into the Capitol and yeah. ultimately committed suicide by cop, I think. And either that alongside the, the man who went in, in Cincinnati to the FBI building and, and tried to in, engage in some light domestic terrorism there. And you're just seeing these- the guy, in, the guy in Pennsylvania who's arrested and charged for threatening to slaughter federal agents. Right. Who, who it, we call police state scum. I mean, these people are actually doing, this is happening. This is not theoretical. Yeah. And, and the places on the internet that I spend a fair amount of time, you know, going on to places like Truth Social, the, the Trump social media network, uh, or, or just, you know, odd corners of TikTok or Twitter or what have you. I mean, you are watching people very earnestly say that, you know, the IRS agents are going to come for, for our guns. They're going to take our mm-hmm. guns away. And, and we are, we are actively prepping for a civil war. Uh, and, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but the, these are real people who really are believing this and, and really, you know, taking some kind of prep, preparation action and it, it's 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 genuinely frightening like I, I again for for just a what's supposed to be a very quiet summer month I, I really think the tensions have escalated considerably over the past two and a half weeks in a, in a frightening way okay so Donald Trump is actually out there doing his normal thing I mean this is this is look I, I I've said this before I don't think that Donald Trump is a strategic genius but he's got this reptilian cunning this reptilian instinct so he calls in yesterday to was it Trump digital or whatever you know amid all of the violence that we're talking about let me just read you with a Time magazine report in such a fraught moment Trump returned on Monday to a playbook he previously used on January 6 2021 seemingly offering to help calm his supporters while actually feeding their anger by describing that anger as justified. So he tells Fox News Digital that the country is in a very dangerous position. Whatever we can do to help, because the temperature has to be brought down in this country. If it isn't, terrible things are going to happen. And then, of course, he added, the people of this country are not going to stand for another scam. So (laughs) I don't know about you. This just strikes me. And of course, Trump world and even the anti-anti-Trumpers will say, see, well, he's calling. He's actually wanting to reduce the temperature. He's concerned for the first time Donald Trump, you know, wants to play a constructive role. I, on the other hand, read that as basically going, nice country you got there would be a real shame if something was to happen to it. It, 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 Exactly. It's, it's, it's honestly the language of, of an abusive spouse or a partner (laughs) of some kind, right? Where it's, you know, it's it's like, well, I, I have to, you know, I have I have no choice but to you know, but to be violent. Or, or I think I've seen it compared to like you know an an arsonist who <laughs> set fire to a house and says, oh, you know, I think we I think we all need to come together and put out this fire. Uh, so it's, or it's, they go back to your abusive. Look what you made me do to you. Right, and that seems to be the implication. Like you know that he reached out to Merrick Garland, uh, you know. Attorney General, boy, while you're doing all this, I just hate to tell you that it's really bad out there. Just something for you to keep in mind. So here's another thing, and then you you have studied this for so long. It's sometimes worth slowing down to think about stuff as opposed to letting it all wash over you. The fact that one of the things that Trump is throwing out there, where he's throwing the shit up against the wall, is, well, you know, there, there was nothing, you know, n- nothing illegal, no no classified documents uh, at Mar-a-Lago. But if there were, 
they were planted by the FBI. Here's a former president of the United States suggesting that the basically the O.J. Simpson defense, they planted the evidence there. All of his explanations keep shifting. They are mutually contradictory. And but Trump, here's the reptilian instinct. Trump knows that he can get away with this stuff, right? I mean, people out there, and this is what scares me, Charlie, is that there are millions of people who at some level know he is bullshitting them, know that he's lying, and they don't care. And, and he knows that. This is what he has figured out, that he can say this stuff and they will still back him. Yeah, he he learned very early on, I guess in his life in general, but uh, but also in the, you know, in the 2016 election, he learned so early on that there were just no consequences for yeah. for shameless behavior. And that in fact, shameless behavior was really almost a cheat code, right? That if, if you can't be chastened by, you know, corrections in the media or by, you know, your opponents speaking out and calling you liar or whatever, what have you, it really is kind of this cheat code to be able to do whatever it is that that you want to do. And in terms of an of an audience, I mean, I used to fret a lot while covering this stuff of what do these politicians believe and what do the supporters believe? And, you know, is everyone just playing along? And and I just I don't think it matters anymore. You know, I think I I've always yeah. go back to and it's 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 this is not a new analogy, but it just it's it's like a sports team, you know, like it is it is so tribal in that way that the MAGA movement has just become a, an identity, right? And it's more right. about the relationships between different people on that side and preserving them and preserving this culture that they are building of, you know, essentially a minority rule. And I think that it strictly does not matter. It only matters who is saying what. Right. It doesn't matter what, what's being said. Oh, man, I... And, and and you see this in again the the shifting arguments that that the big lie for example they're they're just pretexts I mean it it so it, it, as soon as you refute some fact something else comes up because it's all noise at this point it's all noise and this is part of the problem that that I, I guess you, you you struggle against sort of nihilism and despair that nothing matters because all of the arguments to principle and evidence you know you flip a coin and if it was on the other side, they would be making exactly the opposite arguments, right? It's like, what argument do I need to make to support the tribe? What principle do I need to pretend to uphold when it's never about the principle? It's never about the evidence. It's never about the logic. It's just, I have to say these things. And so our political discourse does often just feel like complete noise. And and you will find it's it's exhausting, isn't it, to to go back and say, well, this is what you said a few years ago under you know the opposite circumstances, and you know what about this hypocrisy? That hypocrisy is just like built in now, right? It's just a complete flip. Yeah, and it doesn't really work to change minds. Um, my my colleague at the Atlantic had a had a great interview that came out either a, a couple of days ago, and maybe even yesterday or um, about this idea that uh, stop the steal is is a metaphor. It's right. not about voter fraud. It's it's this idea that basically liberal whites or people in metro areas are are illegitimate, right? And they're changing America the in America. these yeah in in these you know illegitimate ways. So stop the steal is this metaphor. I thought that's such a great way to think about all of this. You know, <laughs> it doesn't it's matter right. what the actual content is. Right. It's this idea that if a certain group of people are trying to 
have any say in the direction of the country, they are not legitimate because they don't represent the real ideals, the real, you know, legitimate citizens of America. Huh. And that's very difficult to, to counter because it's not, it has nothing to do with policy or, or even really ideas. It's just about who's behind them. And, and again, that's, that, that's, it leads us to some dark places, I think. All right. Speaking of, of a dark place, um, I actually said something yesterday that that shocked me that I said it, not because I, I disagree with it, but because I think it's self-evidently true. So I, I was on uh, Deadline White House yesterday on MSNBC and John Heilman was sitting in for Nicole Wallace and he asked a very provocative question. I, I don't know whether he, he you know this was a throwaway question, or not, but he asked a very, very direct question. Could the GOP actually nominate someone who was under indictment for espionage. And we only had a chance for a one word answer. And I said, yes. I think I said, yes, absolutely. And then afterwards I thought, oh God, what did you just say? Imagine a man under federal indictment for espionage being nominated by a major political party. And I guess the more I think about it, the more I think, of, of course they would. Who, who's going to stop them? Trump would be waving the bloody shirt of his martyrdom, right? So, what do, what do you think? Is, is is that is that extreme? Have I have I gone to some dark place to think that that even under indictment, that Donald Trump would insist that you must rally around me, we must vindicate, you know, the Orange God King, and and that they would? I don't know that he'd win, but that the Republic. I mean, who's going to stop? Is Ron DeSantis going to run against him? What do you think? I think as long as conditions hold, that that's a totally un understandable position to take. You know, I, I mean, I think what is always fascinating about this party, specifically the, the Republican Party of, of today, is it really is about raw power. And it has nothing to do with ideas of propriety and electability in that way and legality. And, you know, all that is thrown out the window. It's simply who has the most control of the base. Because I think, I think a very real thing, if you talk to, if you really kind of develop relationships and, and talk to some of these elected officials on the right, there's a palpable fear of their base. Like yeah. they are afraid. I mean, this goes back to, you know, all the initial condemnations of January 6th, followed by three days later, sort of seeing how it's playing with the base and realizing, oh, well, I guess I, I guess I need to, you know, talk about how this was Antifa or this was actually a, you know, an FBI plot or, or, you know, blown out of proportion. And it was, it was a peaceful protest because the base has this sort of like hostage, like control of the party. And I really do think, you know, with a number of Republican leaders who've, who've been in elected office for, you know, pre-Trump, I think that there is this, this palpable fear of crossing them. And Trump represents their sort of idol. So as long as that holds, there's absolutely no reason to go against that in, in, in my mind. I, I think, you know, indictment be damned. So one of the great fears is they don't want to end up like Liz Cheney, which I, I think speaks volumes about it. They, well, if I speak out, I'm going to, you know, lose my, my seat in Congress, which is the worst thing that I can imagine. So it is interesting that they would see Liz Cheney, and tell me if you disagree with me, they see Liz Cheney as a cautionary tale rather than a like, wow, you know, what would it be like to actually stand for something and be courageous? Um, because, you know, they look at her and they go, well, she's not going to be a member of Congress anymore. And, and I can't imagine anything worse than that. I mean, that is my that is my greatest fear, not losing my soul, not not supporting something that's illegal, not not being part of, of an insurrection. But 
seeing what's happened with Liz Cheney and saying, that is the fate I fear more than anything else. I was talking to somebody a couple months back in the Obama administration who's very close with a lot of you know people in Congress and was and I was expressing a lot of the same fears that that, that mm-hmm. we're expressing mm-hmm. here and and they said that one thing that is is heartening is they they know in their in their hearts that these these people who have seemingly you know gone along with the the MAGA playbook or, or what have you don't actually believe any of this stuff don't are you know they're they're just afraid to lose their jobs. They're just, that is the, yeah, the motivating figure. And, and they, they thought that that was kind of like something that, you know, was a keeping them optimistic about, you know, or from spiraling, you know, totally into, into dark territory. But I actually sort of see the opposite of that, which is, I mean, if that is the, the primary motivation, if job security is the be all end all primary motivation above, you know, your country above obligations to, you know, your office, to our democracy, I mean, that's as grim as it gets to me. Yeah, the idea that you can just you know take up these ridiculous conspiracies and and fake realities all in service of preserving your job so that you can get a lobbying gig on the other side of it is just very upsetting to me. Speaking of conspiracy theories, let's talk about Alex Jones because you had a great piece last week about Alex Jones. And, and I want to start with, with this thing. I mean, one of the reasons why J- Jones is not a fringe figure, why I keep coming back to him, you, you wrote that everybody on the far right these days seems to be cribbing from Alex Jones. I love this, this paragraph where you're writing about Tucker Carlson. Tucker's resting interview face, for example, is patently ridiculous and punchable, but it's also this memorable weird thing that maybe catches people's attentions as they're flicking through the channels. The chirons that run on the shows are geared toward being screenshotted and outrage shared on Twitter than they are toward helping his audience. So Jones has gone from an absolutely absurd figure who should, in a rational, you know, completely fictitious Earth 2.0, be a pariah, to being a role model, even for Tucker Carlson. What is the relationship between Tucker Carlson and Alex Jones? It's complicated. Yeah, it's, I mean, and, and there's a lot we we don't know that may actually be revealed from the messages in his phone, which have been turned over to uh, certain committees. So to the, the context of this is a few years back, I befriended, or, you know, as a, in a reporting sense, um, this man named Josh Owens, who won a contest when he was in college, a video editing contest uh, that InfoWars was doing. He was a self-described angry young man uh, from a conservative family. And he started listening to Alex Jones, sort of liked the conspiracy side of it for the humor effect. Uh, You know, he found it kind of funny, uh, but he also kind of agreed with a lot of the anti-Bush, anti-Obama sort of uh, anti-establishment mm-hmm. sense that, that Jones had for a long time. So, you know, I think it was 2012, he won this contest and Jones invited him to join InfoWars as a video editor. And he did. And he spent between, I think, 2012, 2013 to 2017 with Jones, which is really sort of the ascendance of him into a sort of popular, like real popular culture and, and political relevance. And we met in 2019 after I had profiled Jones. He was this shadowy source that never came through for me. Um, And I and some other people helped him get 
this um, essay talking about working for Alex Jones and how awful he was and, and expressing a lot of the regret that he felt personally for his involvement in InfoWars. Uh, and that got published in 2019 in the Times. And since we've just sort of kept up a reporter source relationship, we talk whenever Alex is in the news. And, uh, and he spoke with me about watching the trial. So that was the context of why I was talking to him. And he, during that time, told me sort of out of the blue that, you know, one time in, I want to say it was 2016, I might have, have that wrong in my notes, Tucker visited the InfoWars offices in Austin, Texas, and kind of palled around for the day with Jones. And Jones was showing him 9-11 videos, trying to get him to, you know, kind of come around to the 9-11 conspiracy theory. But as it was described to me, it was this sort of kind of friendly, collegial time. And while Josh, the former InfoWars employee, isn't sure whether, you know, Tucker was there to like pick up, you know, tips and tricks about how to do his job, it's very clear that he sees Alex as some kind of contemporary, right? Like he might not say that, but but it's it's very clear that, you know, they're in the same general business. And and so, you know, what what Josh told me is he sees bits of Alex in what Tucker does and he sees it increasingly, which I think is important that there's there's more and more being cribbed from that playbook. And the thing that I pointed out was Alex is popular or Alex gets his popularity to cross over sometimes to the mainstream when he's outlandish, right? So it, it's almost this like Trojan horse for some of the ideas. You know, Alex Jones's most famous clip is he's yelling about chemicals in the water that are turning frogs gay, right? And he's screaming about it. And it's this, it was for a very long time on the internet, this viral clip because it's ridiculous. But at the heart of it is a conspiracy theory. And Tucker sometimes is the same way, right? He will throw up some ridiculous Chiron on his show and or you know he'll have that ridiculous face as he interviews somebody about you know gypsies or you know what have you and people will screenshot that and say meanwhile on Fox News uh you know put that on Twitter or or you know some of his ridiculousness just kind of comes out and that does the job of actually spreading Tucker around, you know, it, it, like his, his message is, is sort of quietly being spread as people are trying to say, look at this ridiculous guy. So what is the appeal? How does it work? You know, you, you've probably seen, you know, Jack Schaefer in Politico writing about the lie economy, that lying is more lucrative than truth telling. Outrageous lies pay better than moderate lies because advertisers of sketchy products pay top dollar to reach pre-sorted, maximally credulous audiences. I mean, what is the appeal for millions of people to buy into this? Why does it work? Because, I mean, Tucker, Tucker looks at Alex Jones and goes, okay, this works. How if I am like slightly more, you know, uptown on this, you know, how can I profit from it? What is the appeal? I think if I had to narrow it down to one thing, it would be simplicity. I think that life is very difficult for a lot, most people, truly most people, life is difficult. It is complicated. It is shades of gray. It is sometimes some people, sometimes your, your worst enemy has a good point, you know, like, the, like it's, 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 the world is complex and people, especially like Alex offer absolute simplicity, right? 
mm-hmm. you feel bad. You feel knowledge. Yeah. yeah, you feel a certain way. Well, I can tell you exactly why. And guess what? It's because the people you hate are doing it to you, right? Mm-hmm. Or the people who aren't like you, who are others, are are actually doing that. It it offers these very simple ideas to sort of make sense, these simple frameworks to make sense of the world. And they are tailor-made to fit into the places where you might feel aggrieved or the places where you might feel scared, right? The people people who don't look like you moving into your neighborhood. Well, there you go. It's mm-hmm. like, that's why you feel so bad, right? Or, or people who, you know, have a different relationship to faith or live in different part of the country that doesn't really make sense to you. Well, here you go. They're pedophiles and, you know, they're trying to groom our children. Like, I think why these bigger lies sell so well is because the bigger the lie, the more simple it is, you know, like these conspiracies are, are very, you know, like take something like QAnon. It's, 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 it's an incredibly complex web of stupid theories, but at the heart of it, it's very simple, right? It's a very simple idea. It's the people have taken over your government. The reason you, when you look outside and you feel like you don't recognize your country, this is why. You can go as deep as you want into it, but mm-hmm. the lie is huge and simple. But this is why it is so crucial to understand this, because I don't think you can understand Donald Trump or the appeal of Donald Trump or the role of Fox News without understanding what Alex Jones has done and his appeal. And as you described Jones as the nation's second most prominent conspiracy theorist, and we all know who the most Mm -hmm. prominent conspiracy theorist is, and this is the world that we live in now, which is mind-boggling when you think of you know, why is Alex Jones not a fringe figure disdained by anyone? Why does anyone in journalism quote him? And that's one of the themes why no one should ever quote this guy. Yeah. So talking with Josh about this, I mean, it confirmed a lot of things I've been feeling for a long time. But I mean, a great example is with this trial, right? Alex has been sort of chastened lightly by the legal system, you know, facing $50 million in damages suits to the Sandy Hook parents, he's sort of has to, at least in the courtroom, play a little bit nice, right? Or stifle his, his usual shtick. And as a result, he has said on the stand, I believe that Sandy Hook actually happened. I don't believe it's a hoax. Now, this was the thing that ended up you know, a week and a half ago, whenever the, I can't time is a flat circle now, uh, yeah, whenever, whenever, uh, this trial was that ended up being the headline, right? Alex Jones says blank. Well, that's, that's a good headline for Alex Jones, right? If you don't follow this stuff, you say, Oh, look, the conspiracy guy, like he's come around and that's, you know, your interaction with it. But Alex Jones has said this dozens of times and then walked it back and then whatever, you know, that's what he does. He just plays and dances on the line. And the second that it looks like he's actually going to face some consequences, he tiptoes back over into, oh no, I'm a reasonable guy territory. It's all BS. And quoting him on this stuff, he's such an unreliable narrator of absolutely everything. He's such a, a bloviating liar that it doesn't do any good to quote somebody like Alex Jones, because you you never know whether it's the truth or not or where to go. So what what's the point? All you're doing is sort of spreading his propaganda for him. So what effect will this trial have on him? You know, he's been deplatformed before he plays the martyr victim card, finds a way to monetize that. Uh, is it wish casting to think that losing a 50 million dollar verdict is going to be a bump of the road for him? 
Well, unfortunately for Jones, and I'm not by any stretch familiar with all of the law here, but I believe there is a cap on the damages suits in Texas that's going to make it difficult for him to pay more than I think like a million and a half dollars in total. So some of the discovery has shown that, you know, Jones is making tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars off of his store and selling vitamins and supplements and conspiracy stuff. He's got a lot of money. So this is kind of a drop in the bucket for him. It's certainly not going to hurt his relationship to his audience. If anything, he will use this as what Alex does is anytime he gets in trouble, he uses that to say, I am hovering over the target here. I am so close to <laughs> to really actually identifying, like, you know, I've gotten under their skin so much. Look what they're doing. They're coming after me. They're trying to drain my funds. Please donate to the InfoWars cause. And you know what? It works. It's it's not going to hurt, I don't think, his bottom line too much. Now, there's, there's a series. I think there's two more of these defamation trials, maybe three. I can't quite keep track. You know, this could add up. Some judge in Connecticut could really go after him. Uh, You know, it's too early to know. But I think that we can't overlook the fact that his texts have been turned over to the January 6th commission. Now, I know they end, I believe, in mid-2020, so before the 2020 election, which might be difficult there. But, you know, there could be stuff in there that could put him in, in truly you know, hot water from a, almost like a treason standpoint. Uh, again, who knows, but that seems like a potential avenue for, for some real legal jeopardy. So tell me about your encounter with, uh, with Alex Jones personally back in 2017, um, when you were over at uh, Buzzfeed, you wrote about all of the supplements that were being flogged on Infowars, and you reported that they're really no different than what you could get at Walmart or GNC, just for a lot more money. And Alex Jones was really pissed off about this. Yeah. A little extra context to that is I wrote this big, long profile of him, and I ended up being one of the first reporters to show up at his custody trial that ended up being this sort of big national thing. Um, and and really kind of dug into his life, interviewed dozens of former employees and wrote this pretty scathing piece that I thought, you know, he would be pretty mad about Mm -hmm. it. It it reached his radar. He talked about on his show, but it it never, you know, I think he seemed to like having the sort of combative nature of, of the mainstream media against him. Cut to like four months later, I decided I bought a bunch of Infowars supplements and I sent them to this lab that analyzes <laughs> supplements because I wanted to see like, you know, these aren't supplements aren't FDA approved. You know, are these bad for you? Are they good for you? Are they snake oil? And found out that they're basically, as you said, like they're just high priced markups of stuff you can get anywhere else. And he was furious. I had tried to contact and like talk to him on the phone for for that profile, so he had my number, uh, and he never got back to me. And I was uh, I was on a run in Montana where I was living at the time, and it was the middle of the afternoon, and I had published the story the day before, and he Facetimed me while I was on a run, and I said, "Well, you know, if Alex Jones Facetimes you, you got to pick it up." Yes, and I picked up, and I was like red faced and sweaty, and somehow on the other line, he was more red faced and sweaty, uh, despite <laughs> just like being in his office. And he, yeah, he was furious. And you, you know, the reason I, 
I think that story is interesting is because it speaks to hitting Jones where it hurts is that's the profit center, right? Anything that jeopardizes mm -hmm. the store is really what jeopardizes Infowars itself. And I think that that's an important thing for people to remember. And it's also what makes all of this kind of scary because the other part of that story is he told me, you're going to regret this. I'm going to talk about this story on the air and we're going to run a, a BuzzFeed sale on our products. And he did. And I, for a long time, didn't know what effect that had or didn't have, you know, if it was just a bit of trolling against me. And in the discovery of this Sandy Hook defamation trial, uh, some of the InfoWars profits, store profits were were released. Mm -hmm. And Huffington Post got a hold of the document in January. And I remember I scrolled through to find the day or two after my story published when they ran this sale. And lo and behold, there was a, a sizable bump in, you know, like, and we're talking like tens of thousands of dollars in their revenues. And so what was so difficult or depressing, I guess, about that was, you know, I, I was trying to do my job as a reporter to understand what he was selling, what he was doing to try to expose the fact that he's basically just marking up vitamins. And all it did was help him Jeez. played right into his hands and it sort of shows how jones but now you're seeing it with people like tucker and in the sort of the fox news digital subscription app these fringe figures or, or i guess popular figures now are just on the on the far right are building these networks these information networks where they have this ability to you know amplify sort of maximum amplification and like maximum impunity, right? They are mm -hmm. just inoculated from having consequences because their subscribers will support them. And it's it's a very difficult situation to get into, you know, when you're not beholden to advertisers, when you're not beholden to anyone saying, hey, we think this is reprehensible, we're going to pull money from it. It makes them sort of bulletproof, right? It, I mean, as, as long as they keep giving the folks, you know, the stronger meth all the time, they keep them hooked, uh, then they don't have to worry about blowback or, or boycotts or, or being deplatformed. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that the InfoWars staffer, Josh Owens, told me that was, you know, <laughs> very revealing to him was as soon as Alex got deplatformed, he just spun that into, into a way to, you know, raise more money to, to double down with his current audience and to recruit more audience to say, like he changed the name of his, of his, of his platform to band.video, right? <laughs> he, he became the most censored man in America. Really? And it was, it was a, it was a, a useful marketing tactic. And so this is something that I think is is really it's genuinely a difficult thing to think through for journalists or really anyone who's trying to hold Jones or people like him to account, which is how do you do that? Can he successfully be held accountable for any of this, even through the legal system? And yeah. and I think you see it with with all sorts of people, the Daily Stormers proprietor yeah the neo-nazi i think it's, i think his name's andrew anglin um yes. he got in all this legal trouble up in montana for his involvement in this harassment of this woman in whitefish and there was a trial and you know he wouldn't show up to the trial he was you know apparently out of the country in some way hiding out and there was a you know a multi-million dollar judgment rendered against him that he had to pay in damages and so far he's never even been 
found. Uh, I, I think people know where he is, but he's basically like beyond the the reach of the legal system in that way, right? And so it's just it's a very sobering thing to think about the fact that if you again are are so shameless, if you have no decency whatsoever, if you refuse to comply, if you flee the country, you know, in order to to get away from this stuff and and no one's going to spend the time to extradite you or whatever. This is actually an example of people avoiding, you know, all culpability for horrific things that they're doing. And and that's a very scary kind of precedent to set. Well, and and especially because when you see it in the political world as well. So speaking of of the guy who was the video editor this Josh Owens, you tell the story about how he goes out on one of these Alex Jones road shows and, and sees the people who are the fans. I've asked about this before, but he said there, there were those who took it all very, very seriously. And then there were those who treated it like it was watching South Park, like, like it was just an act. And every once in a while, doesn't Alex Jones basically imply that it's just an act and that he's going through this, right? I mean, Owens told you he doesn't understand how people can feel like it's an act because Jones doesn't present himself, you know, is it anything other than deadly serious? People who disagree with him are demons or pedophiles. But the people who believe everything he says versus the people who really don't necessarily believe it, but they love the show and they love the fact that people are, you know, upset by it or triggered by it. I mean, is that part of the entertainment value? I mean, I think so, but I am perhaps too close to this that I'm sort of over the question of whether Jones believes this or whether he's a performer or whether he's, and I know that's not exactly what you're asking, but I just think it's, it's the thing I get asked the most when people find out that, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time around Jones and, or have this, you know, kind of historical knowledge of, of his person is this, you know, well, does he believe everything he says? You know what? It kind of doesn't matter because look at what he's doing. A thing that had come up a lot in my conversations with Josh is this, you know, talking about being there at Infowars during the time that he was doing all this Sandy Hook awfulness that that Jones was doing all this. And, and, you know, Josh has been, he's on his sort of his own, uh, you know, journey of, of personal redemption and, and, you know, he's, he's doing all of, all of those things. And, and he's very honest about this and says, you know, I didn't spend any time working on any Sandy Hook related stories or anything like that. And he said, but it doesn't excuse the fact that I didn't even really register that that was happening while I was there. And he, and he said something near the end of our, our interview that I that really kind of struck me, and it was one of the reasons why it didn't register is because this is just what he does with absolutely every news story. Anything that happens, any tragedy that happens in America or the world that he can latch onto and use for his own benefit to you know boost his own narratives to go get people to buy stuff in the infowars store to scare people to get them to you know uh, donate money to him whatever whatever he can use whatever tragedy he can glom onto he he will do that and he does it every single day he's on the air for at least four hours a day five and a half days a week and what he was saying to me i really really resonated was Sandy Hook in in some ways is obviously an outlier in how horrible it is, but it's just the template. There are a million of those examples of people who, whose lives are made worse by the fact that Jones takes their tragedy and uses it for his own personal benefit. And I thought that that is just a, 
it, it's it's a really good way to put in perspective the damage that this guy has done to you know, so many people and to just like the discourse in our in our country. And 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 that's why I don't really care what he believes because when all is said and done, Alex Jones's footprint of destruction or or just you know misery is so great that it's going to be hard for people to like comprehend. Charlie Warzel is a contributing writer at The Atlantic, also author of The Galaxy Brain, a newsletter about the internet and big ideas. Charlie, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks as always for having me. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again. <laughs>